Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength conditioning and strength conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. This week on episode 219 of the Barbell Medicine Podcast, we're going to discuss the science of lifting belts. Lifting belts have been around for a long time, dating back to at least the weightlifters at the 1896 Olympic Games in Athens. Long before that, it is said that Milo of Croton, the legendary Greek athlete who reportedly lifted a calf every day of his training during the four-year period between the Olympic Games, would make a belt out of the cow's hide before he competed. Belts are also very popular with nearly a quarter of gym goers reporting that they use a belt when they lift weights. Still, despite the long-standing history and popularity of lifting belts, many fundamental questions surrounding their utility remain. How do belts work, for example? Do belts improve performance and reduce risk of injury? Or are they a crutch, making the muscles of the trunk weaker and less prepared for the demands of life and sport? All this and much, much more on this week's episode of the Barbell Medicine Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Pioneer Belts, trusted by some of the world's strongest athletes. Choose Pioneer for your weightlifting belts and accessories. Pioneer has belts to fit your needs, whether it's a 13mm thick, 4-inch wide belt for powerlifting like me, a Velcro hybrid belt for CrossFit, and everything in between. They'll also custom make belts to your specifications. I bought and paid for a new belt from them last year and been very impressed with both the performance and quality. All products are made in the USA. Check them out at generalleathercraft.com and support those who support us. This podcast is also brought to you by Bells of Steel, maker of high-quality exercise equipment that won't break the bank. Established in 2010 and located in Indianapolis, Indiana, Bells of Steel's mission is to help you get stronger, healthier, and more muscle for your hard-earned dollar. Bells of Steel has a ton of cool products for outfitting your home gym, including calibrated iron plates, air bikes, belt squat machines, racks, and much, much more. If for whatever reason you don't love your new equipment, Bells of Steel offers a 30-day money-back guarantee to return your order, and they'll even pay the shipping back. Check them out at bellsofsteel.us and use the code BBM23 to get 10% off selected items. This podcast is also brought to you by Viori. Viori makes super high quality, versatile clothing for inside and outside the gym for both men and women. I'm absolutely in love with their fleet pants and core shorts. If you know me, you know I'm pretty picky about the stuff I train in, and both of these items are super comfortable and super durable with the type of training that I do. I've also been wearing their Rise Tee in and outside of the gym, which fits better than more expensive shirts I've tried before. Viori also sources sustainable materials for their products and offsets their carbon footprint 100%. Head over to the website, viori.com backslash barbell, to get 20% off your first order. All right, we're back here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. We've got the second most handsome doctor in North America. We're going to wrap about belts. Dr. Baraki, what's going on, man? Hey, man. I'm doing all right. What's up with you? I mean, you know, honestly, besides pulling fun facts about Meal of Croton out of nowhere, 
<laughs> I mean, I guess this makes sense. This gives you more context to the story, right? So it's like, okay, he lifted a newborn calf, you know, every day. And it's like, what, like in perpetuity, like forever, like he's a nonagenarian just lifting now a full set cow. But it makes sense. Like if it's between Olympiads, so he's got four years to take the bit newborn and then it gets bigger, 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 you know, three did years. He re- did, he, did he supposedly repeat this cycle? Were they even yeah, doing that's cyclical Olympiads at the time? I don't know any of this history. <laughs> yeah. So again, this is all legend, right? This is like sixth century BC. So who knows? Yeah. I don't, uh, think, the, I don't the, think the Olympics were going on in that fashion at that time. <laughs> I mean, it would be weird if they were, but who knows, right? And so, yeah, the story goes that, yeah, every time before the Olympics, four years prior, he'd start lifting this. I mean, to the extent I know this, and I am not an expert in, you know, history, but (laughs) when trying to figure out like when did belts first come on the scene yeah it'd be like he'd start with the newborn calf and then you know three years 364 days (laughs) he would every day lift this lift this calf and uh i guess at the end he would fashion some sort of belt out of the cow's hide yikes all right yeah i don't know but there are (laughs) there are pictures from the there's like 1904 olympics uh with people wearing belts and there's a report of weightlifters during the 1896 olympics in athens using a belt hmm. so i guess yeah i don't know so it'd be i'd be curious i would love to get my hands on that like a collector's piece like this is the first belt that was that we have record of i don't know that i'm sure that exists somewhere and somebody far more wealthier than you and i yeah. <laughs> has that but that would be cool i would much prefer that to like this is the first dumbbell or kettlebell or like weight from the york factory or something i don't know do you is there any like lifting memorabilia you would be like interested in having? Probably not. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, not not for me. <laughs> How about an Alico on a Alico waffle iron? That if the, if you consider that lifting lifting memorabilia, then yes. <laughs> yeah, if Alico came out with a special like a limited edition run of new waffle irons, and uh, to be clear, I I am a I think the waffle is superior breakfast meal compared to a pancake i'm team waffle yeah and if i, I could make this agree. yeah if i could make this on an alico which i assume is a calibrated waffle iron oh boy <laughs> with a knurled <laughs> handle yes it's got a knurled handle i bet when you pour the batter in there it's like this is exactly the correct amount of grams of batter <laughs> it just stops you it's just a calibrated waffle that's the that's my type of breakfast um in any case, so we have some new content on the website, new articles. We got stuff on liver function tests. We got stuff on headaches. We got stuff uh, from Derek Miles coming out on power. Uh, so check out the new website. I uh, got some new articles. We'll also have this lifting article or lifting belt article up on the website soon. Also have new YouTube content um, if you're interested in like watching infotainment. And we have new seminars on the website, ready to go live in-person learning events. We both have our two day health and fitness seminar. That's with Dr. Baraki and myself and the rest of the barbell medicine crew. You guys get to get some uh, practical lifting instruction, plus some uh, nuance with respect to health and fitness. We talk about that over two days. So we're in Brooklyn in May. We'll be uh, in October with uh, Dr. Alan Thrall at Untamed Strength. And then we'll be in Sydney, Australia in January. Uh, and then our pain and rehab team, so Dr. Derek Miles, Cam, Charlie, et al. will be in Bozeman, Montana, so you can live out your – it's like a Yellowstone ranch thing. Like if you're into yeah. Yellowstone, <laughs> <laughs> like you get to go up there for that. That's going to be in June. And then they ju- we also just uh, recently opened up uh, uh, spots for our 
LA seminar. Uh, they're doing a pain and rehab seminar at the same place we did uh, our health and fitness seminar at Monarch Fitness Club in Los Angeles. So that'll be in September. So if you're interested in joining us or our pain and rehab team at a live in-person learning event, we get those are linked in the description below. And we have new merchandise on the website as well. We just released our university line. I basically had this idea of having like, oh man, like, you know, remember the old property of yeah. shirts yeah and i was like okay but like take all that crap off there let's just do like our, our barbell medicine like the 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 name and then do some cool colorways so yeah we've got a university line we got t-shirts got crewnecks got hoodies got shorts uh so those are all produced in a limited uh, quantity so get them while we still have them because uh, when they're gone they're gone uh any other life updates you want to share with the class um at the moment uh just continuing to work at the hospital for the rest of this week. And then I get a, a bit of a break. Training is going poorly, but we are keeping on. And, uh, and we talked yesterday, some, uh, I was paying a lot of attention the past two weeks, the NCAA, uh, swimming championships for both men and women, uh, went down in the last two weeks. And that was, uh, probably the fastest meets ever. It was insanely impressive, uh, to watch all of this. So that's what I've been paying attention to. You know, it's weird. Yeah. So, so it's March madness. We're in the, we're in the midst of March Madness, and I don't think either of us have watched a single basketball game. Correct. I know. Yeah, but I did watch a lot of golf, and I've watched mm-hmm. a lot of professional motocross. Well, supercross actually, because indoors. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you watched a lot of collegiate swimming. Yes. And I, I don't know. Could we pick more? I mean, golf is not a niche sport, but motocross certainly is, and swimming. Yeah. While swimming widely, is, a, is an Olympic sport, <laughs> pretty much. That's how often people usually pay attention to it. Sure, yeah, they're like, man, swimming's kind of cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, every every four years. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Um, all right, uh, and and are you are you still in the pool? You still doing some swimming stuff? I'll be back in the pool on Friday of this week. I took a bit of a, a break from that when things were very very cold here because I was like, I used to have to jump in pools when things were very cold outside involuntarily and now that it is all voluntary i don't want to do it so now that it's getting warm again i'm happy to go back during my my two seasons of swimming in high school in st louis which gets you know pretty cold over the winter i remember that being a big barrier to me wanting to swim and i was like (laughs) in addition to not being a particularly strong swimmer outside of the fly i was like bro what am i doing yeah like i'm not everybody else looks much different than I do. I'm not yeah. built for this. <laughs> I'm not supposed yeah. to do that. anyway. Um, okay. Well, as, uh, as I talked about in the intro, we're going to talk about belts, particularly the science of lifting belts. Let's start this off. We'll talk about how belts are made. Uh, Austin, before, before we act, t- actually talk about the construction of, you know, weightlifting belts, you're, you know, you're in an occupational setting, you're in the hospital. Do you see anybody walking around the hospital wearing a belt? I, I, I'm thinking like old time, uh, orthopedic surgeons that, you know, got to stand in the OR for hours on end. And they're like, ah, I just use this back brace or, you know, people involved in like a lot of patient transfers from, you know, whatever. You see yeah. That? I, I, uh, I think that I've intermittently seen folks just walking around with back braces and, and I get the sense that those are more for maybe they are experiencing some sort of ache or pain related issue and they feel it's going to help. I think that in, you know, more recent years, not like the past few years, but like I suppose more so in recent decades that there have um, become there, there's been developed a lot more advanced like equipment and devices to facilitate patient transfers that do not rely on humans to lift other humans. 
So I remember like being in the hospital before and finding, you know, unfortunately a patient who either fell out of bed or slipped and fell and, and landed on the floor. And the the staff on the on the floor wheeled in this thing that looked like a miniature crane that had like a hammock at the bottom. And they basically lowered it down to the ground and, and slipped this hammock underneath the patient. And then this mechanical crane elevated the patient and they put them back in bed. And this basically re- made it so that none of the staff had to physically lift the patient because I guess, you know, that would be challenging and, and risk, you know, injurious, potentially injurious to untrained non-lifters lifting uh, potentially large and awkward objects. And so that's the kind of thing that we see now that is used for those kind of things in, in the hospital setting. But intermittently, you'll see people with back braces and I don't usually dig into what's going on yeah. there, man. <laughs> it, it seems like they could have just paged you and you could have uh, <laughs> yeah, deadlifted yeah, the you patient know. back up. Or, but yeah, I guess, it's the you know. plate. Same with, you know, who's, who's the person that they want to do CPR and things like that. But, you know, that's not my role anymore, but <laughs> has been in the that's, past. People always ask, like, what are the risks of, like, getting really strong? Well, there's a few. So, one, you're going to be asked to pick up heavy things. So, when people move, <laughs> who do you think's the first person they're going to call? Yeah. You. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Somebody, you know, you're in the hospital setting. Somebody falls. They don't have one of these crane contraptions or whatever. <laughs> you're getting you're getting a call to the to the to the majors. You CPR. Look at those triceps. We're going to find yeah. out exactly how strong you are. Uh, so yeah, there's some downsides there. Um, but all jokes aside, let's uh, let's get into how belts are made. So we're going to talk about weightlifting belts uh, primarily because you know it's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, not the you know Journal of Ergonomics and <laughs> you know occupational safety. But there was some occupational data that we'll definitely review today. But let's talk about weightlifting belts. These are most commonly made out of a piece or pieces of leather sandwiched between two layers of suede. These layers are glued and stitched together to make the belt and high quality belts typically come in two different thicknesses, 10 millimeters or 13 millimeters. And in fact, when you read the rule book, it cannot be any thicker than 13 millimeters. Now, (laughs) that being said, I don't know that there's any like, you know, sports science lab within the IPF or USAPL or other powerlifting federation where, you know, some materials expert is going through and measuring these things. I think rather if you are a belt or equipment manufacturer, you pay the, you know, you pay to play. So your stuff is approved. And just as long as it's got your, you know, you made the thing or your brand is on there to like, yeah, this is fine. But I've been through a bunch of different equipment checks at many, many different meets in many different federations. And nobody's sitting there with like a micrometer or some sort yeah. of thickness that is just like, oh yeah, this belt seems like it would work, which is actually interesting. And we'll, we'll get to that here. So we'll talk about a few different dimensions with respect to belts. The first one is thickness. So like how thick the belt is a 10 millimeter belt. So it's 10 millimeters thick front to back is uh, one piece of about six to six and a half millimeter thick leather sandwich between two, two millimeter thick layers of suede, thus totaling about 10 millimeters. Uh, on the other hand, a 13 millimeter belt has two layers of about four and a half millimeter thick leather sandwiched between two, two millimeter layers of suede to again, total 13 millimeters. That's the typical construction of a high quality lifting belt, though there are some variations within the industry. For example, some manufacturers use a separate layer of artificial leather. This is called robust leather. Uh, it's actually a type of plastic and is used as a stiffening agent. It's maroon in color. And if you cut belts in half, Sometimes, particularly those from, oh, uh, we'll just call it lower quality belt manufacturers. You might see that. Uh, other belts use actual plastic, which never breaks in and is very, very stiff and is quite uncomfortable. Actually, uh, Alan Thrall and I both had this experience with an Elite FTS belt. 
I remember uh, hearing you guys talk about that before. Yeah, it, this belt was, I mean, it was my second ever belt. My first belt was an Inzer belt, uh, which was a double prong. And I actually broke the, one of the prongs and I was like, this seems like a hazard and I don't really know how to replace this. So I'm just going to get another belt and Oh, elite FTS, great brand. Uh, you know, I'll get one of their belts and it has a layer of thick plastic in the middle of it. So one, this is not legal for competition. Like you can't, that's, that's specifically verboten. It's against the rules, but also it never breaks in. The belt constantly is just digging into your sides, creating all sorts of havoc. And I remember Alan was using it and he's like, he, he, uh, we were at a lifting seminar and uh, somebody pointed out like, yo, there's, that's plastic in there. <laughs> and we all kind of had a good laugh. We're like, dang, that's why this belt sucks so bad. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. But you know, I, I assume that that's cheaper than buying real leather. Um, but I, you know, again, not a materials expert here. Uh, there are also variations in how the belts are constructed uh, if they don't use suede on the outside. So there are some all leather belts, which is basically, again, leather on leather on leather on leather. Uh, so if you ordered a custom belt from Pioneer, for example, one of our show sponsors with like an alligator or croc look on the outside, that's actually leather on the outside, not suede. So it's leather on leather on leather on leather. And it's probably a bit stiffer than suede sandwiching leather in between. Um, the next dimension we'll talk about is width. So this is really just top to bottom. Like how wide is the belt? Uh, lifting belts come in all sorts of widths. And if you look throughout the industry, you'll see stuff, you know, even as small as like one, one and a half inches on the narrowest and all the way up to like six inch belts or more. Uh, but most high quality belt manufacturers typically stick in that two and a half inches wide, uh, have it three inch belt or a four inch wide belt. Uh, some of them will even do this a slightly larger one at five inches, but the maximum that's allowed in powerlifting competition is four inches. And the max allowed in Olympic weightlifting is 12 centimeters or 4.7 inches. Uh, and yeah, we're going to talk about like how to fit a belt, you know, how to maybe pick a belt for you later on at the end of, of this, uh, podcast. But, um, with those two dimensions in mind from here, manufacturers use a die and a press to cut holes in the belt, usually about one inch, uh, from center to center for each hole to leave enough leather in between the holes so that the belt doesn't tear. And again, there are a number of different fastening mechanisms available, single prong, double prong, and a lever. We'll talk about all that at the end of the podcast. Uh, but for now, you guys understand the gist of how to make a belt. So for this podcast, I pulled every study I could find where they compared wearing a belt to doing the same task without one. I did effectively my own systematic review. Now, I'm not going to publish the exact methodology because if you guys looked at it, you'd be like, wow, you're an idiot. I'm like, yeah, I know I'm not, I'm not a library science major. Like I didn't have somebody on call that could like run this review for me. But uh, I effectively looked at any sort of systematic review, pulled all the studies from there, and then just used these keywords within PubMed and a few other different um, compendiums of medical journals. And so I got a total of 36 studies, 20 from the occupational setting and 16 where people actually lifted weights. Uh, a full accounting of each study is definitely outside the scope of this podcast. And honestly, you guys don't want to hear that just going study by study by study by study, <laughs> but we'll review the relevant data for each question we're trying to answer here. So to start, how do belts work? Um, so there are a number of different mechanisms by which belts are purported to quote unquote work. That is allow somebody to lift more weight, do more reps, potentially reduce injury. Uh, we'll save the discussion for whether or not wearing a belt actually does these things for later. But for now, let's take a look at some of the mechanisms by which a belt might work to start it off. It's going to be intra abdominal pressure. And, uh, you know, just to define these things, this thing, 
an increase in intra-abdominal pressure is one of the most common mechanisms by which belts are said to work. Intra-abdominal pressure is defined as a pressure, the pressure concealed within the abdominal cavity and is variable based on the the respiratory phase and the abdominal walls, muscular resistance, or potentially resistance from another more nefarious cause. If you have a disease or uh, some sort of uh, inflammation of the tissues that make up the abdominal wall. Uh, Austin, do you ever measure intra-abdominal pressure, which is abbreviated IAP in the medical setting? Have you ever done that personally? Yes. Yeah. So that's something that can be done because just, I mean, people may be familiar with something like uh, compartment syndrome that can happen in very, in your limbs um, that, that where, you know, doctors might measure the pressure within a particular like fascial compartment and they may need to release that pressure to relieve symptoms of pain and things like that. Um, similarly, you can have abdominal compartment syndrome where the pressure within your abdomen is so high that that can lead to various consequences that are if, if uh, talking about some of these other things with belts was outside the scope of this podcast is, is definitely without <laughs> outside the scope of this podcast. Um, but there are ways to, to measure that. Often it can involve like bladder based measurements, but some, some other ways to do it. And it's often more seen in the surgical setting than, than in the medical setting. But intra-abdominal pressure is something that we think about uh, very frequently and is relevant to a lot of aspects of physiology, particularly in the, the hospital setting. As I recall, during my intern year, there was a guy with pancreatitis really severe and it was like necrotizing you know mm-hmm. like, yeah. and he had a, acute compartment syndrome of his abdomen and they were like we got to slice and dice to relieve the pressure uh seems like a bad seems like a bad deal that's a very uncommon thing to be seen with pancreatitis but sounds like he had a, a especially severe case and probably needed to be in an icu <laughs> can confirm can yeah. confirm okay so let's talk about intra-abdominal pressure and how it uh kind of oscillates normally. So the diaphragm is a muscle that separates the thoracic cavity where your lungs are uh, from the abdominal cavity and the abdominal organs contained within below. Uh, When you take a breath in, the diaphragm contracts and moves downward, which decreases the size of the abdominal cavity and thus increases intra-abdominal pressure when you're breathing in. Similarly, intra-abdominal pressure goes down as the diaphragm relaxes and moves upward while the elastic properties of the lung expel air at the same time. So when you breathe in, Diaphragm goes down, intra-abdominal pressure goes up. When you breathe out, diaphragm moves up, intra-abdominal pressure goes down. Uh, to summarize, if when you take a breath and hold it, like we do in the Valsalva maneuver, the ab- intra-abdominal pressure goes up substantially because, again, you've breathed in, lungs are full of air, diaphragm is down, and now you're also adding this holding of the breath and added muscular tension from the abdominal wall, which ultimately decreases the size and increases the resistance of the abdominal wall which dramatically increases intra-abdominal pressure. And this is a mechanism by which belts are supposed to work by increasing stiffness of the trunk segment. So let's put some numbers on this. In healthy individuals, the intra-abdominal pressure, average intra-abdominal pressure is about 20 millimeters of mercury when standing. You compare that to like a normal uh, systolic blood pressure. That's the top number, which is 120. So it's far lower than your blood pressure, but you know, Nevertheless, it's about 20 millimeters of mercury while you're standing. It's much lower when you're uh, lying down. Uh, if you're standing and doing a Valsalva, intra-abdominal pressure goes up to about 65 millimeters of mercury. So over triple the amount that you normally have when you're just standing there. Uh, when you're jumping, the average intra-abdominal pressure as tested, I believe this was in about 30 uh, young dudes is about 171 millimeters of mercury, so pretty high. And interestingly, when deadlifting about 90% of a 1RM uh, with a belt, 
intra-abdominal pressure is about 175 millimeters of mercury and about 156 millimeters of mercury with no belt. So to me, that was interesting because again, you know, jumping, you're like, well, probably not a whole ton of force being produced, uh, compared to maybe a deadlift, particularly 90% of a one RM, but it's the transfer of force, I guess, is more, uh, I guess, germane to actually leaving the ground and jumping. So you've got to create this rigid cylinder, uh, to transfer force from the legs upwards to propel yourself upwards. And then during a deadlift, that's not as important, but nevertheless, you wear a belt, intra-abdominal pressure seems to go up. Um, even when you're lifting and just with like the impulse, I imagine that that is a contributor. I mean, I imagine that you might even see similar, you know, increases in it. And like if people sneeze and things like that, you know? Yeah. Yep. Definitely increase in IP intra-abdominal pressure when people are coughing, sneezing, laughing, peeing, uh, do a number two, etc. Yeah. So all of these things, intra-abdominal pressure goes up to like do stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. So as a theory, it does sound plausible that an increase in intra-abdominal pressure raises the ability uh, for people to either display force, so like strength performance, or do more reps, or something like that. But it does raise two additional questions. So one, is there a specific style of breathing that increases intra-abdominal pressure more than others? And two, do belts further increase intra-abdominal pressure? Uh, So for the first question, people reflexively hold their breath when lifting effectively performing a mini Valsalva maneuver, uh, again, to presumably increase intra-abdominal pressure. With respect to breathing style, a few different studies have investigated different breathing techniques and their effects uh, of intra- on intra-abdominal pressure. So for example, one study had 13 men and 20 women perform a maximal isometric rack pull uh, using different breathing strategies. So effectively, it was a machine that looked like uh, it had a bar that was set about uh, just above knee height, and they yanked on it as hard as they could for a few seconds. Uh, as expected, inhaling first and then holding the breath, which is a typical Valsalva maneuver, produced the highest values for intra-abdominal pressure compared to breathing in and out while lifting or exhaling prior to holding the breath. And this is exactly what you would expect. If you exhale first, the lungs are smaller, the diaphragm is up a bit higher, the cavity, abdominal cavity is a little larger, and so pressure is going to be lower. And then if you can actually make somebody breathe in and breathe out while they're producing force, which is not something that people will typically do on their own. Uh, yeah, again, same sort of thing, just bigger space, less pressure. Um, the suggestion that people should breathe in during the downwards phase and breathe out during the upwards phase of exercise or similar recommendations to avoid the Valsalva maneuver, which is again, taking a a breath and holding it, uh, is based in this idea that you can reduce risk of unwanted outcomes uh, with respect to the Valsalva maneuver principally increases systolic blood pressure. This is all made up. This was not like based on some like large trial or series of case reports of Valsalva mediated injury during exercise. It's just made up. Uh, So not only is this breathing pattern difficult, if not impossible to perform during challenging efforts, particularly dynamic efforts where you're actually like moving and lifting stuff, the risks of performing the Valsalva maneuver which center around an increase in systolic blood pressure during exercise remain um, unsubstantiated. Uh, Austin, do you have any thoughts on this like thought that we should avoid the Valsalva maneuver? Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, for people who are applying or recommending that kind of advice of, of breathing, I don't know what it is in during the downward phase and out during the upward phase or whatever. It's like difficult to even think about because it's so counter to what you would intuitively do when trying to do something hard. It's effectively a cue that just necessarily prevents you from doing anything hard. <laughs> like it's, it, it's hamstringing you from trying. And if that's what you want, um, then fine. 
but I think that the risks of performing something like a Valsalva maneuver um, during efforts that are challenging in the gym, um, I, I don't think that the risks are uh, really what what a lot of folks uh, uh, claim them to be. There probably is a very small segment of the population who have some form of structural heart disease for whom those kind of efforts may increase the risk of certain bad outcomes. Um, people with obstructive, you know, issues that limit blood outflow from the heart and things like that, where, you know, those are the kinds of situations where we see bad things happen during exercise. But again, those are very uncommon um, and are part of, you know, sports participation, you know, things to, to identify those kind of, those kind of individuals. But outside of that, you know, I have no reservations when I'm like coaching somebody in the context of lifting to teach them how to brace. I, I also think that people pay a ton of attention to, you know, blood pressure specifically as it relates to Valsalva and exercise, maybe because there's visual evidence of what that looks like, like my face when I lift without realizing just how significant and substantial blood pressure swings can be in day-to-day -day life when you're not really paying attention to it. Um, you know, I've had patients who thought that their blood pressure was supposed to be like the same thing all the time. And it's like, no, this is a extremely dynamic thing up, down, um, you know, second to second throughout the day. And there can be pretty significant swings, even if you just get super stressed out, you know, that, that can have significant swings. Um, so, so this is not really a source of concern for me when I'm coaching like general population folks and, and particularly not like competitive lifters either. Yeah, no, I agree. And we'll actually talk about the effect of wearing a belt on blood pressure here in, in a little bit, but yeah, I mean, all exercise increases blood pressure while you're doing it anyway. And so to the extent that doing a Valsalva maneuver raises it a slight bit more, uh, while you're doing presumably hard things that, you know, have, uh, noted benefits from doing them. Uh, I mean, just not, not really concerned outside of people who maybe exercise is a contraindication in general. So again, people who need either a pre-participation screening or have some sort of uh, thing that requires either urgent or emergent medical care and probably aren't listening to this podcast. But <laughs> in any case, so it, it seems clear that breathing in before the exercise, doing the Valsalva, that raises the intra-abdominal pressure the most rather than any other sort of breathing technique that's either completely made up or uh, otherwise advised. So that leaves the remaining question, do lifting belts further increase intra-abdominal pressure during lifting? So to measure this, researchers ins insert a small tube uh, into a number of different places. So one, they can do it they can insert a tube into the stomach via the nose in, through the esophagus and then ultimately ends up in the stomach and they can detect intra-abdominal pressure that way. They can do it through the bladder. So a catheter through the external genitalia <laughs> into the bladder, you can check it that way. Or, and in a couple of the studies they've used, they shoved it about 15 centimeters up people's uh, rectum by way of the butt <laughs> and measured it there. So I actually asked Austin, I was like, would you rather deadlift? with a catheter threaded through your nose, down through your esophagus, into your stomach, or would you want one, you know, up the rectum? And he said, through the nose, into the stomach. I don't know, because if I had to do 90%, like of a 1RM deadlift, I I'm almost assuredly vomiting with something <laughs> in my stomach. And I don't know if I'll have, you know, a code brown <laughs> if it went the other way. So I, I don't know. I, I think, I think we might be split on that. Yeah. I mean, I think it's uh, reasonable to leave this as a hypothetical though. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let us know in the comments, which one you'd prefer. Um, so in any case, out of all the data currently available on belts during lifting tasks, seven investigated changes in intra-abdominal pressure of the seven, 
five demonstrated a significant increase in intra-abdominal pressure with the belt as compared to not wearing a belt, and the other two did not find a consistent trend. It also appears that combining a Valsalva maneuver where there's an in, uh, where the inhale occurs first uh, and a belt together seems to be additive, meaning that when you do both of them together, the intra-abdominal pressure is even higher than doing one or the other. So for example, in one study that was conducted on nine young individuals deadlifting 90% of their 1RM, which was tested beltless, so they tested the 1RM beltless and then did 90% of that with a belt and you know 90% of that without a belt, intra-abdominal pressure was measured at 175 millimeters of mercury with the belt and 156 millimeters of mercury without. Uh, intra-abdominal pressure also raised uh, more quickly before the lifting started with a belt. So again, almost preparing the individual to transfer force from their legs and, and the rest of their musculoskeletal system uh, through the trunk to the arms and then ultimately to the barbell. Uh, in another study where six adults deadlifted loads ranging between 73 and 91 kilograms on a machine with and without a belt uh, and with and without a conscious Valsalva maneuver, the intra-abdominal pressure was highest with the belt and with the Valsalva maneuver. The same additive increase in intra-abdominal pressure was found in another study where subjects were placed in a semi-seated position uh, that restricted hip motion, and they were subsequently pulled by a cable that was attached to a chest harness. So effectively, they had like a, I don't know, a vest on with a hook in the middle of it, and there was like a pulley system attached to it, and weights would drop randomly to see if they could resist it. And so if they did a Valsalva and they had a belt on, their intra-abdominal pressure was much higher than without a belt uh, and without doing a Valsalva maneuver. Uh, this same thing happened um, when nine young dudes were asked to do rack pulls and deadlifts at 375 and, uh, and 75% of their body weight, respectively. Uh, so effectively, they, again, used uh, a belt, did a Valsalva maneuver, and intra-abdominal pressure was higher uh, when they combined both of those things together than if they were done separately. But in any case, using a belt did seem to increase intra-abdominal pressure. The last study actually gave us some hard numbers on this as far as like how much does intra-abdominal pressure go up um, with respect to using a belt so they had five young dudes do an eight rep max squat with and without a belt now the average 8rm squat was 125 kilos so 275 pounds so not for eight bad. that's not bad yeah that's what i'm saying they probably squat yeah. 405 pretty close yeah. <laughs> uh, in this study the intra-abdominal pressure increased uh with a range of 25 to 40 percent with a belt so it's not nothing. Uh, definitely seems to be a reliable increase. Uh, on the other hand, the two studies showing no difference in intra-abdominal pressure with and without a belt used only isometric tasks. So the muscles weren't changing length. So it doesn't really tell us much about what a belt does to intra-abdominal pressure during a dynamic lifting task like squatting, deadlifting, etc. cetera. Uh, overall, it seems like both wearing a belt and doing a Valsalva maneuver have the potential to increase intra-abdominal pressure independently during lifting, and they likely do so to a greater degree when combined. And as far as how this works, again, in increasing intra-abdominal pressure could increase the stiffness of the trunk and allow for more efficient force transfer throughout the body. But we'll save that discussion for later. For now, let's take a look at how belts influence muscular activity. The second increase in pressure that's that may lead to increased performance has to do with intramuscular pressure so intramuscular pressure is the fluid pressure within the muscle itself that seems to be directly correlated to muscular force production in general when intramuscular pressure goes up so does muscle force production this relationship can be different 
with muscles that have different penation angles. So the angles at which the muscle fibers run and whether or not the muscles are changing length uh, and so on. But in this context, an increase in pressure within the muscle probably correlates to more muscular force production. So in this particular study, they used a machine and did, again, isometric tasks using a tapered weightlifting belt in seven untrained dudes. They basically have this uh, machine that's got a handle on it and they can adjust the handle to different heights. And therefore the people have like different configurations where they're lifting. So one was like an arm lift. It looked like the handle was directly in front of them while they were standing. They try to lift up as hard as possible. They had a leg lift, which kind of looks like a sumo deadlift to me. And then they had a, another type of lift called a torso lift, where it kind of looks like they're doing a Jefferson deadlift, like a fully rounded. <laughs> you can tell by the deadlift. names of these exercises that these researchers don't lift. Don't, don't even lift. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so in any case, in all of these trials where they were basically seeing how hard they could apply force to this bar, uh, they did it with a Valsalva maneuver, even though they were not instructed to. So that bears repeating, like people will do a Valsalva if they're trying to produce a bunch of force, whether or not you tell them to do it or not. And uh, in any case, they measured intramuscular pressure at rest and at peak force output. And these values were significantly higher with a belt. So it does look like intramuscular pressure goes up. Uh, and again, that does seem to correlate with muscle force production, but that's the only study actually investigating this. Just kind of like an interesting side note there. Uh, next, we'll talk about electromyography or EMG. So surface electromyography or EMG measures the electrical activity of a muscle that indicates the level of muscle excitation. While EMG experiments cannot be used to infer motor unit recruitment or how often the electrical signal is being sent to the muscles, it can tell us how robust the level of muscle excitation is during a particular task as compared to its maximal value that was determined beforehand. Uh, so for example, you could have people do like a maximum leg extension and that would effectively tell you what is the maximal uh, voluntary contraction for the quadriceps or a particular head of the quadriceps muscle. And then you could compare the excitation doing another task, like a squat, for example. And if during the squat, the vastus medialis, which is one of the heads of the quadriceps, was at 60% of the maximum voluntary contraction level, you'd say, oh, well, that's less than it was during the leg extension. But as far as what those numbers mean, we don't know. <laughs> the theory here is that a greater amplitude in EMGs implies greater muscle excitation, which implies greater muscle protein synthesis, which implies a greater muscular hypertrophy response. But this remains yet to be proven. We have no studies that have actually linked those all together. So just when people do rely on EMG studies to say, oh, this exercise works better than another. Again, we've addressed this a few times on the podcast. I just I'm not confident in that unless you're comparing something that has like a, an EMG value of, you know, zero or 10% or something of the maximum voluntary contraction level to something that has like 80% or 90%. Effectively, you're saying, okay, in this one exercise, the muscles are working a lot. And in this other exercise, the muscles aren't working nearly at all. And so, yeah, you would predict a greater hypertrophy response, but that really hasn't been <laughs> proven uh, in any particular study. In any case, we're going to talk about EMG studies with uh, respect to using a belt versus using no belt. So 14 studies sought to answer this question with respect to muscles of the trunk. There's one study that found uh, that the, uh, there was a higher EMG level with a loose belt. And again, this is in that same sort of study where they used a quick release weight drop as attached to a thoracic harness. Uh, so yeah, the EMG was highest in the erector spinae muscles with a loose belt. Six studies found no meaningful differences between wearing a belt 
or uh, not wearing a belt. So one of the studies was that 8RM squat test with and without a belt. Uh, there was no difference in EMG activity for the erector spinae, the external oblique. Um, another study uh, had 14 young dudes uh, did doing squats at 90% of their 1RM, and there were no significant differences in the EMG of the trunk muscles in that study. Uh, there were four additional studies that found EMG values were higher with the belt. So for example, uh, using, uh, again, a machine-based isometric task uh, study design and a tapered weightlifting belt. There was a higher EMG value for the rectus abdominis uh, with uh, with the belt and a Valsalva uh, and during lifting, but otherwise no changes in EMG for the external oblique or the erector spinae. Uh, another study doing three reps at 60% of a 1RM of a high bar back squat with the belt and without, there was a higher EMG in the erector spinae. Again, that's a muscle of the low back. Uh, it was higher by about 23%. And then uh, finally, three studies had mixed data. Uh, the one cool study I wanted to convey to our listenership was that uh, this study actually compared a 12RM sumo deadlift versus a 12RM conventional deadlift. Oh and God, That kind of PRs. Nice. That's right. <laughs> and they did it with and without a belt. So there was a greater EMG in the oblique muscles without a belt. So 62% of this maximum voluntary contraction uh, without a belt versus 53% of uh, the maximum voluntary contraction with a belt. But there was a greater uh, EMG signal for the rectus abdominis. Those are the straight muscles uh, on the front of the trunk uh, when they were using a belt. Again, it was 63% um, with a belt and 56% without. Um, but overall, it looks like EMG studies EMG changes relating to using a belt are complicated and not straightforward. Even if we assume that changes in EMG correlate with changes in strength or muscle growth, uh, the changes in EMG are quite small if and when they appear at all, suggesting there is likely little to no practical effect. While I'm not sure I feel confident in predicting the changes in EMG someone might see when wearing a belt, I am pretty confident that I don't really care either based on this data. Effectively, it seems like it's all over the place without a reliable signal and the changes are just, again, as I said, pretty small. Uh, Austin, any of this EMG data like impress you or cause your, your brain to light up like, hmm, that's, no, that's definitely not. And and I think that part of the issue or part of the reason why is obviously you, you laid the groundwork well with like, how do we even interpret these findings? And then when it comes to the findings themselves, we have a lot of relatively small studies um, that are going to be challenging to find like substantial differences. And then once we find substantial differences, we're like, I'm not sure what this means. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, even that, You yeah. know, it's like if, if, if the performance actually goes up, um, then I would feel a bit more confident saying that, Hey, it actually improves performance. Um, although it's still difficult to like blind that. Um, but when you're looking at it just in terms of electrical amplitudes, which are noisy, messy looking signals, if anybody's seen these kind of, uh, like tracings, um, then I don't know what to make of this. stuff. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think if I saw again, it, uh, this reliable, and large difference in magnitude across, okay, look, every time people wear a belt, their erector spinae EMG goes down by 40%. And you're like, well, that's not nothing. I still don't know if that's a big enough change to really matter, but it happens all the time or most of the time and at a big enough level, then cool. All right. So that's, that's something. But when we're talking about changes of like 8%, 10% or whatever, and it only happens sometimes and not in other studies, I'm just kind of like, 
eh, I'm more concerned with the methodology. Like, does does the belt wearing the belt itself like affect the sensor that you're measuring EMG, you know, in a particular position? Like, that seems more plausible to me. And so ultimately, the EMG data doesn't really, I don't know, impress me. So when people are saying, oh, your trunk muscles are less active when you're wearing a belt. I'm like, well, one, we can't really look at that. We can only look at muscle excitation. And if that's the claim, like where are the studies reliably showing that? Cause that doesn't, that doesn't seem to, to happen. So, and why aren't our trunks weak? <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> After a decade of training at this point, yeah, exactly. you, would, you would think, but yeah, you would think we'd be walking around with like trunkal ataxia, just like our, our, our <laughs> barely abs. able to hold our heads up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or just wide staggering gait. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Uh, but no, that's a, a perfect segue into like, do belts actually improve performance? So there are a number of what I would call outcome studies looking at things we actually care about. Like does strength go up? Does velocity go up? Does RPE change? You know, things of that nature. So let's start out with strength here. And I'll start by saying there are, there are no studies looking directly at whether or not people can lift more weight with the belt as compared to a no belt condition. Sorry to disappoint you, but on the other hand, there is some data suggesting that people likely can lift more weight with the belt than without, but it's not great. So the first sort of line of evidence suggesting that people may be able to lift more weight with the belt than without has to do with a couple studies investigating barbell velocity when people lift with the belt and comparing it to the velocity of the bar when they don't wear a belt. So uh, these 14 young dudes did squats at 90% of their 1RM. They were wearing a weightlifting belt, kind of. It was four inches wide and eight millimeters thick. So eh, not not a great belt, but uh, you know it, it could pass for a weightlifting belt. Uh, and the velocity was much faster with the belt than without a belt. It was uh, overall 7.7% uh, faster with a belt. So that suggests, hey, they can either produce more force with a belt, or they can transfer force more efficiently with a belt. So that suggests eh, maybe they lift more weight. Um, another study, they did an 8RM squat with and without a belt. And again, it was faster with a belt. So each rep seemed to be faster. Uh, and then there was less velocity loss throughout the set uh, as well. So as they got closer and closer to the, you know, end of the set, there was less velocity loss with the belt than with a belt. So both those things say, suggest to me that, yeah, maybe the muscles of the legs can't actually produce more force with a belt, but the transference of that force from the legs through the trunk to the upper back that is interfacing with the barbell is likely more efficient, less distensible, less whatever loss of power uh, or force. So uh, another line of evidence suggesting that people may be able to lift more weight with a belt has to do with a reduction in RPE. So uh, for example, in recreational lifters doing 80% of their 1RM deadlift with and without a belt, they on average uh, rated the RPE two points lower in a belt. Um, there was another study uh, that actually looked at people doing eight sets of 20 with and without a belt on deadlift. <laughs> Oh God. <laughs> yeah. Hey man. Well, so the study design, we'll talk about this later, what actually had to do with like loss of stature, loss of height. And they thought that would be due to like in, you know, loss of disc <laughs> height, you know, throughout this, okay. throughout the, yeah. With and without a belt, see if there was a difference. And they also rated their RPE lower with a belt suggesting I, that, I don't know, maybe some placebo effect. Does that going match on there. your, does that match your experience in training? Uh, I, so, so it's, it's interesting because <sighs> With I, I I have belt like beltless PRs and mm -hmm. belted PRs Same. and so yeah. like <laughs> and and so I, I think if you asked me to do like 
a one at eight with a belt and a one at eight without a belt, the one at eight with a belt would be heavier. But I, but I think the, you know, the RP in that case would be the same. On the other hand, if you just gave me a load to squat, Hey, you got to squat 500 without a belt and 500 with a belt. I, I would rate the RP lower with a belt. So same. Yeah. I mean, I, that's yeah. why hearing these results, I'm like, yeah, that, that sounds about right. I don't know yeah. if it would be a full two points for me. I think it would probably vary <laughs> yeah, confirm, um, depending on the movement and the day and things like that. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think, uh, reasonably consistently would probably rate things lower, uh, with a belt compared to not. So yeah, I agree. RP is likely going to be lower, same load, wear a belt without a belt. That all makes sense to me. What about like strength and endurance? And this actually comes from occupational the occupational setting. So they uh, basically tested a soft belt versus a weightlifting belt on like long-term or longer term strength and endurance outcomes. Cause one of the things that people will say about belts is like, Oh, if you wear a belt, you're just weakening your core. Again, that's kind of the joke we made earlier. That's like a real concern uh, for people. Um, so yeah, they took 12 construction dudes with no lower back pain in the past year. And those folks got a soft, they called it a heat retaining belt. They actually measured skin temperature after wearing a belt, but that's not really important to our study. Uh, and then they also, uh, tested another 24 construction dudes with no current lower back pain. I'm sorry. They did have current lower back pain, um, or they had previous low back pain within the last eight days. Uh, and they gave them either weightlifting belts or no belt. Uh, and basically they tested their trunk strength and endurance tests at baseline. So when they either they got the belt or got randomized in the control uh, at one month after use or after two months of using the belt. And so these people were using the belt basically all day, like nonstop all day. And so if you were trying to discern a difference and does strength of the trunk muscles get worse, does endurance get worse or whatever or better uh, with the belt, you would want them to maybe wear a belt all day, every day. And ideally, you would see a pretty robust difference. So, uh, yeah, they measured the strength of the trunk flexors. So like, you know, when you're doing a sit up, that's your trunk flexor, or if you're extending your back, that's a trunk extensor. They did that on a dynamometer. So it looked like, a uh, effectively like a, like you were doing a seated crunch, uh, against an isometric, you know, and the muscles didn't change length. They just try to impart force against it. And then they tested endurance on a back extension bench for time for the trunk extensors. So imagine just holding your self in an, it's like planking on a back extension bench. And then they did the same thing. They did a basically a half sit up or curl up as they call it, uh, to test the trunk flexor endurance. And so the results with the soft belt, there was no difference in strength or endurance before or after using the belt for the trunk extensor. So the muscles of the back, so like erectors, longissimus, etc. but the flexor in uh, strength did improve by 13%. So their quote unquote abs got stronger uh, after the two months of using a belt almost all day, every day compared to not using a belt at all. Uh, and those were folks with no low back pain for the weightlifting belt. And again, these are the folks who either had current low back pain or back pain within eight days of the trial starting. There was no change in extensor strength or endurance. It didn't get better or worse, but trunk flexor strength. So the, again, the abs quote unquote increased 12%. Uh, in the folks wearing a belt compared to those who weren't using a belt and the trunk flexor endurance uh, increased by 29% after two months of wearing the belt again, almost all day uh, compared to not wearing a belt. So if there was a signal of like, ah, oh, if you wear a belt, your strength's going to go down or of the trunk muscles or your endurance is going to suffer. I don't see it here. Now, again, this, there's an occupational this seems, setting. Yeah. But this kind of seems like a setup where if you were going to find something like that, 
this is where you would see it. <laughs> yeah, wear wear a belt every day, all day, pretty much for two months, and then we'll test your strength yeah. before, yeah. in the middle, and after. Yeah, kind of interesting. But again, this wasn't really like a lifting study. Although, again, I don't know how you would otherwise do it in the lifting setting. You like take a bunch of lifters, wear a belt, don't wear a belt all day, every day, and then do the same thing. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Uh, so, of course, not all the data is a slam dunk here. One study where individuals deadlifted 90% of their 1RM with and without a belt showed no change in velocity or ground reactive forces. Uh, another study showed no difference in the amount of force people could create when doing isometric tasks with a belt as compared to without a belt. But it seems like there's a trend in favor of being strong, stronger with the belt. Velocity tends to go down, RPE tends to go down, and there's no real drop off in strength or endurance with using a belt you know, pretty, pretty frequently for a good chunk of time. Uh, but I'm not married to this theory that you, people are stronger with a belt than without. Uh, Austin, what do you think? I, I think I'm inclined to agree. I also think, you know, um, we prefer as much as we can to have good evidence to support the, the claims and positions that we take. I also, but at the same time, I don't think it's, um, that we would, we would embrace that exclusively to the detriment of like, I mean, you told us that people have been using these things for decades and decades and decades. And it's like, is it possible that people have been doing this for a century or longer? And it has like absolutely no effect whatsoever. It's possible. People have done that with all sorts of like cold remedies and things like that. But is it also possible that, you know, people are onto something and, and it's difficult to dismiss that possibility entirely when we ourselves have, you know, felt what seems to be uh, in line with these findings in our own training. The question though, I guess is, you know, of course, we have also been, you know, conditioned with certain ideas and beliefs coming into training, and we use these across our training career. And there are also very strong, you know, competitive athletes and, and lifters who, um, you know, pride themselves on competing without belts. Uh, um, I remember, what's his name? KK from, uh, I forget where he's from, oh, Constantinov. He was always yeah. like, I am my own belt and things like that. So I think it's possible to get super strong either way. I think that our experience and, and perhaps some of this data lead, you know, uh, leads us to lean in the direction of sure you can probably move weights a, a tiny bit faster um, you might be a bit stronger your rp might be a bit lower probably that is that effect is going to be influenced by things like your experience with using it um that you know how confident and and skilled you are at bracing and and using the belt it's positioning your own level of uh, training advancement and things like that um because i would say that the less trained you are the more noisy these kind of like performance-based data are going to be compared to a more well-trained individual um who has their you know technique really well well refined their neuromuscular efficiency is you know nearly <laughs> maximized in a in a very advanced uh, lifter and things like that so um all in all complicated but i'm i'm inclined to agree that these probably have a benefit yeah yeah I, as far as whether that's due to an increase in intra-abdominal pressure increase in intramuscular pressure or whatever i can't really say or if it's all placebo it's probably yeah. a combination of all yeah. three but if i had to guess but i don't feel confident in particularly ascribing a that one weird trick to you know that the belts are working by and since we don't have a signal that they do in fact you know make you any weaker or anything like that there, there does not seem to be a, a significant downside or or harm here that makes me extra not care what the mechanism is you know what i mean because <laughs> yeah. the idea would be like if you could identify the mechanism um but we have this way by which the belt can be a, a downside or adverse it's like well, well can i get that mechanism in another way um to mm -hmm. get the benefit without the downside and it's like well there's not really a clear downside here outside of like you have to buy one um then mm -hmm. i don't really care <laughs> what the mechanism yeah. is to yeah no i agree 
Yeah, you know, there's one additional concern uh, with regarding belt use, and it has to do with range of motion. So some people will say that yeah, the belt is going to limit your range of motion uh, in some sort of way. Uh, however, there are two studies that actually show some changes in the mechanics of the lift, and if anything, range of motion seems to increase. So in a study where uh, 14 young dudes uh, did squats at 90% of their 1RM, there was a trend towards increased range of motion in the trunk at the hip, uh, at the knee joint and at the ankle and depth actually increased by 5.4 centimeters, which, uh, if my math is correct, is like a two inch increase in depth. <laughs> so that again would seem to, uh, combat that fear. Uh, another study, uh, is 28 young folks. So 17 dudes, 11 women, no history of low back pain. Uh, and they were basically, uh, experienced in handling materials in the occupational setting. So they lifted a small box or a large box. And in each case, the box weighed about 10 kilos, 22 pounds, uh, to stimulate, uh, to simulate stocking shelves, uh, wearing a belt, and this is an occupational belt. So not like a really stiff weightlifting belt, but when they wore the belt, it reduced the max flexion of the spine, uh, reduced range of motion as far as right lateral bending and left twisting, uh, also reduced the velocity of flexion and extension, but hip and knee flexion increased with the belt. And the reason why I completed this study, cause you're like, wait, I thought you just said it increased range of motion. Like what, what do it's like, if you were trying, going to use a belt because you wanted to quote unquote, lift with your legs and not with your back, or if you were very sensitive to rapid changes in flexion or extension of the back, this is yet again, more evidence that a belt may help in that particular situation, which I don't know again, how transferable lifting 10 kilo boxes is to, you know, deadlifting, squatting, clean snatches, whatever. But as far as it actually reducing range of motion, I think that's a stretch. Uh, and again, if anything, it might reduce unwanted ranges of motion because if you and I are squatting, I don't necessarily want a lot of lumbar flexion or extension. I kind of want it to my back to stay the same throughout the rep to the extent that that's, you know, anatomically possible, but right. yeah. And if I was very sensitive to either flexion, so bending forward or extension, uh, you know, uh, bending backwards, uh, my spine due to like a acute low back injury, well, belt seems to maybe reduce some of that. And so can be a nice training tool to have if, uh, you were, you were doing that. So again, not married to any of these findings, like, well, this definitively shows that belts are awesome. It's just like, I don't know that any of the concerns really have like made their way to a level where I think, hmm, yeah, there yeah, might be something to that. We found mix, we found mostly like null findings to potential benefit with respect to like performance and other aspects. And then either null findings to like no evidence of harm with the things that people are tending to be concerned about. So, yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. <laughs> no, I know. Yeah. Yeah. Big shrug. <laughs> okay. Uh, so another thing that people, uh, you know, talk about with respect to belts has to do with spinal compression. Now, I will freely admit these two studies make my eyes roll real hard as far as how they actually measure these things. But nevertheless, they're in part of the 36 or so uh, studies I, I pulled uh, on this topic. And so we're going to talk about them. Um, so yeah, these are some unique studies that show how the belt affects the structure, quote unquote, of the spine directly. One study looked at eight dudes doing circuit uh, doing circuit training with and without a belt to see if there were any differences in spine compression as measured by a steadiometer, which is a fancy way of saying a thing that measures your height to 0.01 millimeters. Uh, and so without a belt, there was three and a half millimeters of loss in stature 
with no belt. And there was 2.9 millimeters of loss with a belt, which was not statistically significant. But if somebody was like, oh, you're actually going to compress your spine more because you're wearing this belt around your mid, you know, your trunk and your abs can't do their job. It's like, well, if anything, the signal seems to be pointing in the opposite direction. Um, another study had dudes do again, eight sets of 20 reps on the deadlift and found that the mean shrinkage so reduction in height of the intervertebral discs between your the bony vertebra, your, your actual discs, was 2.08 millimeters when the lifting belt was used compared to 4.08 millimeters when the belt was not used. Uh, and additionally, the wearing the belt also decreased RPE. And so, again, if you were like, no, but it's more compression on your back because you're just, you know, using a belt. It's a crutch. It's like, again, <laughs> I don't really see evidence thereof uh probably the most interesting finding this this study uh actually looked at they took ct images of people wearing a belt versus not wearing a belt and doing a valsalva either with a belt or without a belt and looked at the roundness of people's trunk and it looked yeah hey they didn't actually have people lift because this was during an isometric task. <laughs> so whatever. But hey, hats off for their creativity here. And it did look like on CT imaging that wearing the lifting belt caused the trunk to be nearly completely round with increased intramuscular pressure in the erector spinae in particular. So those are the muscles of the low back, those things running up the sides of your spine. The authors concluded that the trunk remains round, albeit compressed when wearing a lifting belt. This round trunk configuration is likely a result of increased intramuscular pressure and greater activation of the erector spinae and rectus abdominis muscles, respectively. Uh, Again, we saw like as far as excitation studies go via EMG, no clear signal. So I would probably reject that claim. Um, but yeah, interesting. I just wonder like, how do you call radiology for that? Like <laughs> a, uh, we got a very <laughs> weird order for you today. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. And other weirdness, we're gonna talk about hemodynamics. So this is just a study of, you know, things like respiratory rate, blood pressure, heart rate, etc. Uh, there are a number of studies looking at what, if any changes there are in breathing rate, blood pressure, heart rate, et cetera, with when using a belt and without uh, overall, there aren't really any meaningful differences, but one interesting study actually had people wear a belt while they were performing a cycling test at 60% of their VO two max for six minutes. They also did one R uh, one arm bench press at 60% for 10 reps and uh they deadlifted 40 percent of their one rm for two consecutive minutes with and without a belt like just a weird study design but like okay let's see what happened the interesting part of all of this was that the blood pressure was higher with a belt than without a belt during cycling it was 193 millimeters of mercury during the cycling test it's not maximal 60 percent for six minutes that's like pretty good nothing. blood pressure yeah compared to 172 millimeters of mercury without a belt during the cycling test, but even that was higher than deadlifting for two minutes <laughs> during the deadlift for at 40% of their one RM for two minutes. It was only 178 with the belt, uh, compared to 170, uh, 170 millimeters of mercury without, uh, I wonder if some of that difference is due to like the posture people are in when they're cycling compared to deadlifting, like the belt itself is, yeah, it's compressing and creating again, increased intra-abdominal pressure probably. And that's related to the inferior vena cava and other vascular structures. And plus you're hunched over compared to a deadlift where you, yeah. there's some like dynamic some movement changes. Yeah. 
I don't know. I don't make anything about these uh, hemodynamic changes. Didn't appear that big changes in respiratory rate with or without a belt, heart rate with or without a belt. It's all basically the same. But this blood pressure difference, which again, I'm like, who cares? When people are when people are do lifting heavy ass weights, their blood pressure is far higher than this. So like, I don't care about the actual numbers. When people are leg pressing, even. <laughs> yeah, the one study is a one RM yeah. a one RM leg press, no belt. Systolic blood pressure is in the four hundreds. Yeah, yeah. So like I don't 190 it, come on. I don't care. <laughs> I'm just more interested that like how is it higher during cycling than it yeah. was during deadlifts? Yeah. yeah. The, the more you know, like insert that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. So probably the most concerning topic of this whole podcast has to do with belts and their effect on injury risk. And so uh we're gonna talk about this, but again, I have to make this this disclaimer. The data here is almost exclusively from the occupational setting, which on the one hand, like you, you would kind of want because there's just such a big, a larger data set. Like people, there's just so many people working in industry that they have to lift stuff on a, you know, day-to-day basis. In fact, in the United States, almost every year, there are about a million uh, low back injuries that occur on the job. And that correlates to like one out of every four or five dollars spent on workman's comp being related to a low back injury that occurs on the job. Um, and, uh, also I, I said at the beginning that like 25% of most gym goers actually wear a belt of that 25, 25%, 90% of them report wearing a belt to reduce injury risk. Whereas only 10% are like, nah, it's for the performance gains, bro. So in any case, let's take a look, do belts see, uh, affect the risk of injury uh, for the low back. So, okay, one study uh, basically looked at 632 baggage handlers for American Airlines. I hope I can say that. Like, it's in the paper, so. Sure. Like, look, if you work for American Airlines and you're a lawyer, like, please don't at me. (laughs) But they looked at uh, lower back injury uh, rates over eight months in four different groups of individuals. Group one, they just got a belt, no instruction on how to use it or like handling technique of bags or whatever. Group two just got the class on like how to handle bags uh, and how to lift appropriately, which I probably have my own concerns with that actual class and what it taught, but hey, whatever. Group three got both the class and the belt and group four got neither. They were the controls. So the results, there was no significant difference in injury rate, lost or restricted work days or workman co- workman's comp claim. Uh, over half of individuals who got the belt, whether it was with the class or not, stopped wearing it before eight months, 58%. And the most common complaint was that it was itchy and hot. <laughs> Sure. So, yeah, but still no difference in injury rate. But again, the probably the best study on this is a systematic review designed to determine whether advice uh, and training on working techniques and lifting equipment prevent back pain in jobs that involve heavy lifting. The actual number of participants in this eligible uh, trials was 17,720. Two of these, uh, the randomized trials included uh, use of belt compared to no belt. And the conclusion is pretty telling. In the systematic review, we found no evidence that training with or without lifting equipment is effective in the prevention of back pain or consequent uh, disability. Either the advocated techniques did not reduce the risk of back injury or training did not lead to adequate change in lifting and handling techniques. And so, because, you know, all this stuff is basically like, how do we reduce people calling out of work, having back injuries, whatever, does a belt work, stuff like that. And, uh, you know, effectively no real signal to date. 
similar results were also noted in two large studies. One looked at supermarket employees who were either required to wear a lifting belt in certain stores where that was part of their policy versus it being optional at other stores. The overall incidence of back pain over the two-year follow-up was 17%, but there was no significant difference in incidence of back injury claims uh, in those who wore a belt versus those who didn't. Another study looked at over a thousand employees working at Tinker Air Force Base in Oklahoma and the difference in back injury incidents, lost or limited duty workdays and treatment of back injury based on whether or not they were wearing a belt. Uh, there were no differences between those who wore a belt and those who did not, which led the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health and other organizations to conclude after a review of the scientific literature this National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health has concluded that because of the limitations of the studies that have analyzed workplace use of back belts, the results cannot be used to either support or refute the effectiveness of back belts and injury reduction. And it's like a whole lot of nothing. It's a nothing sandwich. Uh, and as far as like studies investigating risk of injury, that's pretty much it. Again, I pulled every study I could, uh, and that's the overwhelming signal. So as as far uh, far in the history as 1994, the you know NIOSH, uh, CDC, etc., has not been recommending back belts to reduce injury, low back pain, and low back pain, uh, low back injury in the workplace. And I can't say one way or the other whether or not wearing a belt during lifting reduces or increases the risk of injury. I don't think that it does, but I you know I'm not super confident in that claim. I just think it's a, again a nothing sandwich. Yeah. There, I mean, there's a reason why this has not uh, been featured prominently in any of our advice anywhere with respect to injury risk or managing pain or things like that, um, because we, or at least I, uh, do not feel like it has a substantial role with respect to uh, reducing the risk of injury or in um, managing it moving forward. I think that uh, it to the extent you recommend it, you're going to have to justify it with a story that uh, does not fit with what we know about uh, back pain in general with respect to, you know, very specific mechanical and positional aspects and things like that. Um, if, if it were like, a, hey, you can wear this and uh, might make you feel better then OK. But usually people want to know, like, how is it working? Is it going to you know, what's it going to do for me? And, you know, when it comes to managing injury risk in the context of training, um, you know, we talk about managing training loads and and basically making sure that you are as well prepared to do what you're trying to do as you can. Um, and that really extends to the occupational setting. It's one of those things where it's like, are you prepared to do this? And a lot of times those are, are kind of occupational injuries are due to either acute things that are more, you were inadequately prepared for this or just fluke things um, or can come from, you know, chronic uh, kind of repetitive use, overuse, quote unquote, sorts of things. None of which I feel confident that a, the belt is uh, likely to address. Yeah. Well, that's why I included the, uh, that systematic review basically on like, oh, does like teaching people how to lift, you know, change, change outcomes. And it's like, no, because <laughs> it's not just this technique and it's not just the mechanical factors that, uh, that a belt, you know, may also, uh, you know, have an effect on. It's more so like, is the person prepared to do the job that they're being tasked to? And that has to do, you know, that's going to require outside of the workplace, <laughs> training exercise, uh, yeah. not just like taking a class, yep. uh, and, and also like avoiding bad luck yeah. and like so, sometimes bad stuff happens to good people. And it's like, it is, it is what it is. We're not trying to minimize anybody's low back pain experience, but like just by quote unquote lifting right, or like using a belt, like 
that's probably not going to change the trajectory or the incidence of low back pain, days off, workman's comp, et cetera. And that's kind of why they're recommended uh, against right now. And so I think if you were under the impression, oh, just teach people how to lift and they're going to have reduced back injury, back injuries. Well, that's a very mechanical sort of analysis and, you know, might lead you to conclude some, some things that aren't really well supported. Uh, same thing with like using, using a belt. In fact, there's this weird, uh, sort of, uh, 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 value in some of the occupational studies called like maximum acceptable weight to lift M A W L. And that's no different when people wear are wearing a belt versus not, they like rate them the same on average. So like this thought, like, Oh, you'll lift more weight you'll think you can lift more weight if you wear a belt. So maybe belts are injurious. And it's like, well, we didn't see that. And also like even when people are using this psychosocial analytic tool of how much weight do they think they can lift, it's not any higher. Now in a gym, yeah. you ask me what I can lift with and without a belt, I think that's going to change. But <laughs> uh, that has to do with more more training, more training history than, than anything else. So yeah, big, big, big nothing sandwich here on the injury risk reduction. That's kind of my, my takeaway. Yeah. Um, Okay, cool. So moving on, we're going to wrap this up here. Two sections left. So when should someone use a belt? From what we've presented so far, it seems that belts change the range of motion in favorably in favorable ways. Uh, movement style, movement velocity seems to increase. And there seems to be an increase in performance with respect to muscular strength and endurance. Uh, and it does not decrease development of the trunk muscles. So when should somebody use the belt during resistance training? Uh, so specifically like what lifts should you use them on all the lifts or just the quote unquote priority lifts if you have them. And I think when you come to this question, it's like, who, who are you talking to? If it's, if it's the like general population, they're just use you know, resistance training to meet or exceed the physical activity guidelines. They're not going to get involved in a barbell sport or whatever. Like I do not care if they ever have a buy a belt, use a belt, whatever. If they want to wear one because they feel better, great. Use it all the time. If they never buy a belt, also great. Like as long as you're training, that's fine. I think it can be a useful training tool, particularly if they're sensitive to certain movement, then maybe the belt gives them, uh, allows them to exercise. This is the same thing we saw with ibuprofen, right? Like sometimes people with osteoarthritis, if they take an NSAID or other ibuprofen, they are able to actually be active and that ultimately improves their trajectory long-term and it doesn't actually compromise any of their training adaptations. So people are like, can I train if I, should I train if I'm taking ibuprofen? It's like, yes. In general, the heuristic is like, some activity is better than no activity. And so like, however, you got to finagle it, like do that. Um, but when we're just focused on people who are maybe concerned more with performance, particularly in barbell sports, I think this, this conversation gets a little bit more, a little bit more nuanced, but also like less, uh, scientific, <laughs> sure. if you will. So, so my thought here is that you can like adjust your use of the belt as a way to manage total training fatigue total training stress. So consider this, and this is a made up value. Just I'll, I'll, I'll bookend this particular statement by saying it's made up. <laughs> All right. So let's consider a value called a training stress score. And that's the product of the intensity zones being used. So let's say it's 50 to 60% zone one, 60 to 70% zone two, 70 to 80% zone three, 80 to 90% zone four and 90 to 100% zone five. So that's in different intensity zones. You multiply that by the RPE, which tells you the repetitions in reserve and also by the volume and you get some number, some number. If you just use that training stress score to evaluate what is the stress I'm putting on my body with and without a belt, then the training stress score is going to be the same. Because again, if you do a set of five at RP eight with and without a belt, 
the RP is the same, the volume's the same, and you're going to be in the same sort of relative intensity zone, even though the absolute weight on the bar is probably heavier with the belt. So the real question is, does the absolute load actually matter with respect to training stress score? So does a heavier set of five still at RP eight actually cause more stress than a lighter set of five at RP eight that you would presumably do without the belt? What do you think about that? The first uh, would be, I don't know, and also how uh, well-trained and experienced is the person with doing sets of five in this particular intensity range. And I think that the more well-trained and exposed they are to that particular kind of stimulus, then I think the less of a difference you're likely to see. Um, whereas I think the more novel of a thing, then I think that you know you probably experience a more significant difference. I think that there's probably some effect of absolute load, but, um, but overall, um, it, it, like at least in my own kind of training experience, I do not notice that I feel drastically more wrecked from belted sets at a given like RPE target compared to non-belted sets at a similar RPE target, even when the loads are somewhat different because it's usually not that huge of a load difference anyway. Yeah, that's what I'm getting at. So I think like, like I think my best belted, like my, my one RM squat is like 640 pounds with a belt. And the most I've ever squatted without a belt, I think is like 572 or 58, like somewhere in that sort of range. And so like, I don't know that there's a huge difference in training stress score. If we were to calculate it again, that number being completely made up, like people are going to perseverate over the, Ooh, training stress score. I can assign numbers to my training. It's like, yeah, dude, it's, it's a 10%, please. 10% difference or so. Yeah. More but or less. if, yeah. but if it was like 500 compared to 640, sure. I think that might be more, but I don't, I don't know. Yeah. It's all, it's all made up. So in general, I think that outside of a meat prep situation where the weight on the bar at that point actually matters more than anything else, the last few weeks prior to a meet or the, you know, something like that. I think keeping the belt off during non-priority lifts, if you have them is a reasonable rule of thumb for controlling total fatigue. If you like using a belt because, you know, you maybe have some low back sensitivity and like using a belt allows you to train when you otherwise really wouldn't, hey, knock your socks off, go against this general rule of thumb. If you don't have a belt and this thing's all over your head, like cool, just jettison that last, you know, few minutes <laughs> from your hippocampus, doesn't matter. Uh, but if you're trying to consider this, yeah, I think you, it comes down to whether or not you think a heavier weight in and of itself with no other changes to any other parameters actually makes a difference. And I think if the difference is small, probably doesn't if the difference is big, probably does. And so you'll have to kind of, you know, experience that and shake that out for yourself. Uh, so if you're going to use a belt, when should you use it? And my again, rule of thumb here when I coach people is that at a bare minimum, it's gotta be on the last warm up set. And then for your work sets. That would be the idea, because if we agree that using a belt changes the mechanics a little bit, changes the way the lift feels, et cetera, you wouldn't really want a huge difference from your last warm up to your work sets. Uh, for, for that said, if for somebody who's like never used a belt before, I often have them just use the belt the entire time in, in a way to like get used to it, because just you put it on for one set before you have to do your quote unquote work sets. I'm kind of like, well, let's give you some more practice, just putting it on, taking it off, feeling it. What is it? You know, what does it change? change what do, what do you think about that i wear mine the whole time <laughs> yeah it is funny when austin and i like squat and deadlift together it's like i think you put a belt on at like 120 kilos or something like that and like 
I won't put a belt on until it's over 220 kilos. And yeah. that doesn't make me a better person. Like I think, I think that for other reasons, no. <laughs> but, but you do, you put your belt on quite pretty early. early. Yeah. I might, I mean, you know, my first, if my first load is 70 kilos, then I may even do it there, but if not there, then definitely by my next jump. Um, and I don't know that I can articulate super concrete and confident reasons for it outside of I prefer that everything kind of be similar. And then also probably I can play some mind games and like placebo myself a little bit when I, um, I, I, I often like to do various kinds of be it. Sometimes it's like a visualization kind of thing where I'm like, I might be warming it with 70 or 120, but like mentally I am like imagining it as 300 or 320 or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then paying attention to the bar velocity and probably to the extent that the belt can help you move any weight, maybe a bit faster um, then that can like build some, some confidence and some momentum for, for subsequent sets. But this is all just, you know, everybody who has been doing any kind of athletic endeavor for a long time, they, identify various whether quirks or psychological strategies or superstitions or whatever that they uh play around with for themselves and i guess this may be (laughs) one of them for me and and for you perhaps waiting to put a belt on till later is a similar kind of thing maybe it's like you know oh my warm-ups are feeling great without a belt and then when i put it on it's going to be like awesome or something i don't know i could see that kind of happening too yeah the only recommendation i have is just you know outside of like brand new users who may adopt a different strategy just to like get used to the belt try to keep it the same across your workouts uh just because like i know that putting on a belt changes how the load feels right and so if i'm trying to feel a particular weight to see like oh this moved the same as last week or the week before or the last time i saw this exercise i don't want to like confound that feeling with like oh but i didn't use a belt the last time versus this time so like again every time i warm up on deadlifts i do not put a belt on until i'm over 500 pounds i just don't same thing on squats until i'm over you know 405 uh, I don't put a belt on and it's just like that way it feels the same and I'm getting a sort of similar sort of assessment on how strong I think I am on a given day so I can pick the right load uh, within, you know, some with varying degrees of success. But again, all that all being said, someone can live a full and complete life without ever using a belt. I think they just lift a little bit less uh, without it. And again, not have that training tool to, to, to use at some point. Um, okay. Last part of this, how to pick a good belt. Austin, how many belts have you had throughout your career? Really? I think, uh, I think just two, honestly, two. I had like a, a lever belt from Inzer in the OG days. And now I have an, an SBD uh, lever belt. Okay. Yeah. I think I, let's see. So I had my Inzer double prong that I broke one of the prongs. I had the elite FTS belt with the little plastic in there. I had a uh, best belts, three inch belt for deadlifting at one point that I used maybe like a half a dozen times. And I was like, this thing sucks for me. I'm, I'm out. So I, get, <laughs> yeah. I think I gave it to Leah. I think yeah. I gave it to Leah and I think she used that three inch belt for a while. And then I had this 13 millimeter belt, uh, that I've had now for 11 years. That's, you know, it's funny when I got it, I was 176 pounds and the belt was cut on a 28 and a half inch center and I'm still using it. Yeah, I I also I did I did get a Pioneer belt as well, and I've been breaking that in little by little. Uh, it came it comes pretty broken in, but I'm gonna need some more sessions. But so yeah, I've had however I don't know what's that math four belts five belts. Yeah, um, yeah, and so but in general, if you buy a belt and it's the right size and thickness and width and everything for you, and you like the fastening mechanism, like you probably don't need to ever buy another belt again unless you want a different color or you've gained or lost a substantial amount of weight. Although in my case, uh, my weight's gone up by at least 30 pounds, maybe 35 pounds in like some settings, and I'm still using the same belt, Mm -hmm. albeit 
a few holes down the line. Yeah. 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 Okay. So as far as thickness, should you pick a 10 millimeter or 13 millimeter belt? But again, those are the two most common thicknesses of belts. There's no real science on which one creates more intra-abdominal pressure, intramuscular pressure, EMG activity, or any outcome. It's actually a study that looked at like six different belt designs in the occupational setting. Some of them were, one of them was literally steel wrapped in leather. Another I one. I don't even like, understand how that works. I, yeah, it doesn't make any sense. Another, another of them had like actual like metal bars running vertically in the lumbar section. Some, some other ones were like all Velcro, whatever. It just doesn't seem to matter. So the thickness is more personal preference. Um, and in fact, in all the studies that we've talked about in this podcast, the weightlifting belts weren't any thicker than ten millimeters. So it is personal preference. I like a 13 millimeter belt because it's stiffer for me. But again, I am a somewhat competitive powerlifter. And I think that outside of that particular setting, a competitive power, if you're like, no joke, you're showing up to meets, you're doing the thing, 10 millimeter would probably be my general recommendation. If you're going to use it for general strength training, you're going to do clean snatches. Most people don't wear a belt when they snatch. Some people do whatever, uh, presses, whatever a 10 millimeter belt is more than fine. And I can't tell you that a 13 millimeter belt confers additional advantage. Uh, I will tell you that a 10 millimeter belt tends to be more comfortable than a 13 millimeter belt. But you know, when I'm under 640 or deadlifting 700 plus, I, I don't really care about the comfort of the belt. I'm just like, none, none of the, nothing about this is comfortable. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So in general, I would say 10 millimeters, uh, for most folks, unless you're competing, um, I would not go any thinner than that unless you just wanted what I would call like a, a hybrid belt. Like you're going to use it for CrossFit or something like that. And that might be a Velcro belt or a, a other material that is far thinner. But at that point, I don't really know exactly what it's doing at all. And I would still, you know, if Lorraine was like during her CrossFit exploits was like, I, I want to get another belt, Austin, what should I get? And then you were like, Jordan, you did this research review. What do you think? I'd still get a 10 millimeter belt, uh, probably at a three inch because if she's going to be doing more dynamic stuff with it, less interference with like her rib cage and her hips. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Which actually leads us to our next topic of width. So again, you can get belts anywhere from two inches to four inches or more. Some of them can be tapered, some not. I would not recommend a tapered belt in general. I know if you're an Olympic weightlifter and you're listening to this, you like just spit out your coffee or whatever you're drinking, you took your shirt off. You're like, well, so all these Olympic weightlifters use tapered belts. Or if you're a bodybuilder, you're like, well, Arnold used a tapered belt. Like what? And I was like, look, a lot of people did do stuff all the time that has (laughs) no real reason other than like antiquity. So I think in general, non-tapered would be the recommendation unless it's very uncomfortable for you and you prefer a tapered belt, in which case, knock yourself out. Uh, As far as the height or the the width, rather, I think if in general you're over like 5'5"-ish and or you're shorter than that, but you have a longer torso, four-inch belt, like don't even think twice about it, get it live, laugh, love, whatever the saying is, <laughs> go, go forth and prosper. Uh, I think the assumption that if you are shorter of stature and, or have a more, uh, a shorter torso that you need a shorter belt, I think that's overplayed in general. Like Leah, for example, was told hey, you're, you know, she's five, four or something like that. And in yeah. fact, again, I gave her that three inch belt. And uh, one time we were working on our deadlift, uh, she was, her belt just moving, you know, like it's moving a bunch It's too small. And she put a four inch belt on and instantly PR'd her deadlift. Now that may not be the typical story, but like she's not particularly tall, does not have a particularly long torso. Uh, but that has been my experience with her and also other people that previously had smaller belts. Mm -hmm. So I'm more inclined to recommend a four inch belt. If you cannot try these things on before you buy them, um, unless again, you're very, very short, uh, or have a very, very small torso and you, you know, a four inch belt, you're worried about it, like brush it right against your ribs and your hips. 
I've not seen that often enough to actually make it a real concern, but theoretically that makes sense. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, I've seen some people who just anecdotally preferred the three. Most people do fine with a four. I don't think there's any reason for people to go down to the twos no. um, or really much more than four either. So yeah. <laughs> I could see a kid, I could see a kid, you know, a, a younger individual or, or even an older individual who's, who's maybe smaller and not as much muscle mass or whatever. The big thing here is like surface area, right? So what if you're like six, six and you have a gargantuan torso, you know, as far as the, the height goes. You look, a five-inch belt might be better for you, but it's not legal in competition. So you, know, you just have to start with a four-inch, unless you're in strongman, in which case those dudes are monsters, yeah. and they've got like a six-inch belt on top of like a Velcro support, you know, whatever. But yeah, that's not powerlifting, weightlifting, or, or uh, general strength and conditioning. So yep, I like that discussion for width. As far as the length, so this is, and I talked to uh, Matt from General Leathercraft. I asked him like, hey, what's the biggest problem you see with people ordering belts? He's like, people order the wrong size all the time. So you need to, you need to measure your waist. We have an article. I'll link that in the description below. Also a video on how to do that. Uh, and you take an accurate waist measurement. Uh, and then also it's going to depend on how much body fat you carry in, uh, your, the abdominal region, because it's, let's say you're a person who's got a 35 inch waist and you're carrying a significant amount of body fat. You're likely to wear the belt closer to 32 inches. It's going to compress quite a bit. Whereas somebody who's got a 32 inch waist, who's quite lean is going to wear their belt at 31 and a half inches or so. It's just not going to compress as much. Um, so there is no industry standard sizing, but it, as far as a general rule of thumb, the waist measurement that you, you come up with when you measure it correctly should fall near the middle of the range for the standard sizes. Uh, if you're going to order something off the shelf or you can order a custom belt with your waist circumference as the center hole on the belt. And that gives you a bunch of range to go up and down, which is why, again, I've been able to use the same belt for 11 years uh, with a delta of like 35 pounds at some, mm -hmm. at some instances. Uh, as far as closure goes, the fastening mechanism, again, you can get single prong, double prong versus lever. The first thing to say is if a company does not offer a single prong belt, their leather is suspect. The leather is us because again, the most holes are punched at a one inch distance. And if they don't offer a single one, they're like, oh, our leather isn't strong enough to actually hold mm. this. Yeah. Uh, as far as the difference between a single versus double, like people are like, oh, the double prong is stronger or stiffer or whatever. And for me, that's just an extra pain in the ass to like close. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I actually I only agree. had a failure with a double prong yeah. and never with a single prong. Yeah. So I don't want that added level of complexity when I'm like trying to get in or particularly out of a belt. The yep. lever belt is more interesting and, and I'll get your thoughts on this in a second. So Inzer started, they were the first people to come up with a lever belt. The problem was if you wanted to adjust it, you know, either narrower or wider, you had to use a screwdriver. SBD came out with a lever belt that you didn't need to use a screwdriver anymore, but the, still the adjustment is only in one inch sort of increments, which is not great if you're like a tweener. Sure. Uh, Pioneer, yeah. on the other hand, has micro adjustments that ha occur, at, I think it's every quarter of an inch. So gives you some additional maneuverability. Uh, yeah. Although if you wanted to go a full you know, inch narrower or wider, you're still going to have to use a screwdriver. So for my money, if I was getting a lever belt, I'd get the Pioneer just to have more fine tuning. You know, like, so you don't have to have that tweener situation. I don't mind using a screwdriver to like set it and forget it or set it if I gain or lose a bunch of weight. I'd rather just have that micro adjustment, if you will. Yeah, I fully agree with that. Um, I mean, my weight 
tends to be fluctuate as low as like 190 or so and then sometimes as high as like around 200 and then when i'm fluctuating throughout that range definitely the belt fits differently um it also just randomly even at weight stability it'll fit a little differently on different days depending on various things nutrition and hydration and things like that and then sometimes you know you might prefer to wear it at different levels of tightness or slightly different positions, depending on the lift. And this is just, you know, more details with, with more experienced uh, lifters might, might, uh, might, um, you know, come to those conclusions for themselves. And so, uh, yeah, the idea of those kind of micro adjustments is quite attractive compared to one inch things. If you plan to fluctuate your weight intentionally or unintentionally, <laughs> um, or if you um, have the, use those kind of subtle differences from lift to lift or um, uh, session to session, et cetera. Yeah. So I'm a single prong guy. Austin's a lever guy. I think those are the two real choices. I don't think there's any real reason to get a double prong unless you don't like yourself. Or if you're listening to this and you already have a double prong belt, hey, that's great. That's great. I just look the extra step of getting the second prong (laughs) out of there. I I don't personally want that. But if you already have it and you like it, hey, do your thing do your thing. It's totally fine. But if you're on in the market for a new belt, I think the decision is between a single prong or a lever belt. And I think the micro adjustments, there's probably some utility there, yep. uh, which brings us to the last point, like what brand? Um, so again, yeah, if they don't make a single prong would probably avoid, uh, suggest the leather is shoddy. I would also check the materials, make sure they're using leather sandwich between suede and there's no plastic in there. Make sure they have your size. So for example, in a particular brand, if you're right in the middle of their size ranges based on your waist measurement, that's probably better than picking a brand that you might like more, but being on the edge of one of the, you know, of, of their sizing. So you just, just more adaptability there. And then also availability. Cause a lot of people are order, will order belts. And then it's like, yep, just waiting on my belt. And then like months later, their belt mm-hmm. comes in and it's like, look for a custom belt. Yeah, sure. If it's turnaround time, four weeks. That seems reasonable. Six weeks, also reasonable, but it starts getting three months, four months. It's like, bro, I need this belt. Yeah. Like I, <laughs> I need this belt. And so, um, yeah, there's a lot of good belts out there. Pioneer does sponsor our podcast and our YouTube channel and whatever. And I've been very, very impressed see, getting to see some behind the, the scenes stuff. And I, I could not recommend another brand above them. I will say that there are other brands that probably produce stuff of equivalent quality, but you can't go wrong by picking a Pioneer belt and go to generalleathercraft.com. You can custom order one with any color, sizing, thickness, whatever width that you want. Uh, so that's really cool. And they're really fast. The custom belt they made me came in, I think it's three weeks. That's it was awesome. funny. It was funny because I, I said, yeah, I want a logo on there. I want the Barbell Medicine logo. And they contacted me and they were like, uh, sir, this is a registered, this is a trademark logo. Like you're going to need to get permission from the owner of the company it, that you can use me. this. I was like, it, yeah, it me. Also, if you're tr- making, you want to make sure that the logo, whatever you put on the belt is uh, IPF approved or USAPL approved. We got that too. So, you know, I don't know how many barbell medicine belts are going to be out there, but uh, we, we can work something out. Um, cool. All right. So let's take, let's uh, wrap this up here. Uh, overall belts seem to improve strength and power performance. So velocity uh, while you're performing the lifts belts probably work by increasing intra-abdominal pressure, muscular force production, stiffening the trunk and some non-zero amount of placebo effect going on. Belts do not seem to reduce strength or endurance of the trunk muscles with repetitive use, and belts also don't seem to reliably alter the risk of injury in the occupational setting. You certainly don't need a belt, but having one can be a handy tool and probably lets you lift more weight. And again, thanks uh, to Pioneer for sponsoring our podcast. Austin, anything else you want uh, people to take home? 
No, no, I think that's probably more than they asked for. So enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> enjoy. Yeah. And make sure to check out the article that's going to be coming out on uh, belts. Uh, it's going to be this, but in written form, maybe a little more nuance in there. But this has been episode 219 of the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. Make sure to check out all of our sponsors, check out our live events, new merchandise in uh, the store on our website. All that's linked in the description below. But before you go anywhere, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast. So we keep bringing you all the latest nuance in health and fitness from everyone here at Barbell Medicine. I'm Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. Shout out to Dr. Austin Brocky for joining us. We'll catch you next week and every week right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.